Hello, and welcome to episode 102 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. We're actually going for something a little different here. This podcast episode is just so massive and would take such a huge undertaking to get done. Nope, nope, nope. We're going to split it up into parts. (laughs) We're going to release... I should have known! (laughs) Nope. Look, no cloud and no squall will hinder that 180 (laughs) dollars Welcome to episode one of two of Random Encounter. I'm your host, Robert Steinman. Pale Robbie on the board. Sorry for that funny intro. We're going to get right into it today, uh, guys. funny, huh? Oh, come on. It was slightly clever. That's Stephen Myring, uh, everybody. Taylor's on the boards, which I'm not on very much lately, except to show up and disagree with people and then leave. Well, you have a lot of things going on in the Japans. I mean, no, you're... look, I have a lot of Phoenix Wright uh, work to do. Again, you remind me of Gumshoe. That that is who I think of whenever like you make that face or that sound. That that's the sound I think Gumshoe makes. All right. Hey pal, I make that sound. I think Look, so. Pal. I think so. All right, Derek Heemsbergen. Derek, you do it. I'm Embryon on the boards. I also I like I never post on the boards. I think it's funny that we always give those. And uh, the only time I post on the on the the public boards is um like in the podcast thread rarely. But other than that. It's all it's all behind the scenes, guys. Sorry. Hey, what's up? I'm here to talk about Xenoblade, among other things. It's uh, gonna be great. You have been talking about your scales constantly. My scales. 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 That, that sounds like a skin something. condition. Uh, that's uh, Caitlin Argyros, everybody. Lean because they're all on the boards. I'm also kind of shy on the public boards, but I try to get out there more often. How's your scale? I haven't got mine yet. I'm not far enough, but I see a lot of sexy ones in the city, and I want them. I can, I can I can get them, and then they were like, "Here, grind division quests for three hundred years." And I was like, mm. "Okay, so of course we are going to talk about the Xenoblade Chronicles X." I think I'm the only one who doesn't have a Wii U, so I'm the only one who's not playing this game right now. But you I don't like Smash Brothers because you're not actually a human being. Like, well, I, okay. Oh my gosh, Derek is right. Let's let's go through a couple of things here. First off, I don't have a lot of people <laughs> to play Smash Brothers. With. You can play it online. With I don't us. like to play funny games online, though. I, I mean, I would side with Rob on that one. Rob, I'm just giving you crap. I, I know, but like, I, I, I haven't really been into Smash Brothers in a long time, okay? I'm kind of a recovering Smash Brothers addict. I played quite a lot of it when I was in college, thank you. But like, we've talked about before, there's not a whole lot on the Wii U that I'm interested in, but seeing all these skulls flying around is certainly making me kind of think about reaching for my wallet right now. So Xenoblade Chronicles nice. X... I will scale you something right now. They are awesome. They do se- they do seem pretty awesome. So Xenoblade Chronicles X. Let's talk about this game. This it, would we say it's definitely a sequel to Xenoblade Chronicles? Like definitely, definitely a sequel, right? Yeah, spiritually, I mean, not narratively, but yeah. It's it, you know the combat is an expanded version of the Xenoblade combat system, um, and you know it has giant robots. So I mean, it really like that's all we need to get. Yeah. And a lot on. of the same basic systems. Show's over. Bye. 
pack oh, it up. Yeah. It's, it, the story is completely and 100% divorced from everything in Xenoblade 1. There's nothing that carries over except Nopon, and the Nopon in this one's not even as good as Ricky, so... Really? It actually, it has more, like, thematically in common with, like, Xenogears than it does yeah. with Xenoblade. Which yeah. is fine with me as... Caitlin likes that. Yeah, yeah. So you don't actually, do you, uh, maybe this is a bit of a spoiler, so if it is, just tell me to shut up and I won't bring it up again. Do you actually have a Xenoblade? Do, do you get the Monado? No. Really? Not as far as I've seen. I mean, hmm, interesting, interesting. But but that's kind of been you know these games are all thematic in that they they focus in on giant mechs punching out God. Hello, Evangelion. Totally. Wait, no, wait, no. There is a Xenoblade because the organization you work for fights oh, Xenos, and it's called. Ah, Blade. you're right. But okay, so there no is physical sword as far as I know. <laughs> Sadly, no. I haven't beaten it though, so I mean, I mean, maybe it shows up. Maybe you're spoiling the final twist, Rob. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I, it, it's <laughs> not what I'm trying. I'm, I'm not trying to do it. Unintentionally a spoiler. Uh, well, so so there's no metal face in the game. Shulk isn't running around like. It, it, oh, I've seen Shulk. I've seen several Shulks, but they're <laughs> player avatars <laughs> named Shulk. The number of people in that game, because you can, it's like sort of like there's they're happening. And, like, you join groups, and, like, they, everyone is working towards common goals. And the number of people named Ricky, Dunban, and Shulk I've seen is just, it's, I would say it's over half the players are, like, blonde dudes with Shulk's voice actor and Shulk's name. Oh, yeah. Shulk's voice actor is actually in the game? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Shulk's voice actor is one of the, the Avatar voice actors, and that's the one I picked. Now, does he speak with his accent? Because that was actually something you were telling me about, only written in the game besides Fiora's voice actress, who is a girl avatar voice that's okay. the voice i use yeah, and shulk so. actually says i'm really feeling it in his voice so they actually yeah, it's they... funny because they all do oh it's they like, do yeah i think i think that that reached a, a meme critical <laughs> mass and they were like we gotta put it in there because i was using a the rebel voice for my avatar which by the way i think it's really cool that all of the voice actors like they have a personality um so there's rebel heroic um classic which is shulk's they have the actual voice actor's name credited to it. So it's like heroic, Yuri Lowenthal. Yeah, so, I'm glad that's becoming a thing. So yeah, yeah Adam Howden. Yeah, it's it's good that they credit them. So Adam Howden is Shulk, his voice is in there. But yeah, I was using the rebel voice and uh uh one of the soul voice triggers is just I'm really feeling it. And it's like <laughs> yeah, really? come on. It's like of course it's, you are it's funny. And plus if you play the class that gets backslash, I can just relive being Shulk and everything. He's just yeah, like ah, backslash Did anybody funny. Just using the other voices and hearing them use, because there are some attacks that carry over, like backslash. So hearing your other guys shout backslash is like, what what strange new amalgamation chimera Xeno game am I playing right now? No, it's like it's like Shulk opened up a combat dojo and is teaching everyone's yeah. moves, and they're spreading. Now everyone can you can backslash just like Shulk. You, you can, can stream edge, or maybe it's an exercise program, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I went there. Uh, I'm actually really happy about that. It's the Smash Brothers exercise program. I'm really feeling... Ah! Yeah. I mean... Okay, so so let's let's kind of back up here a little bit. Let's, let's talk about this game a little bit. So when they first showed this game, it was just, dude, look at this landmass. Look what you can just run all over exploring. And oh, we gave you a mech. 
because mechs are cool, and so you can fly all around this environment. Is that kind of the crux of what this game is about, is just, like, look at this amazing world that we've created, now go explore? Yeah. 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 I think it is. Like, the, the, the narrative is sort of built around it, sort of like the way Dragon Age Inquisition builds all of its side quests into you are doing things that are strengthening the reputation and the assets of the Inquisition. All of Xenoblade is sort of, humanity is on this planet, and we're trying to, you know... Learn more about it and make it more habitable. So everything you do sort of feeds into that as like a meta narrative reason. Um, so it's definitely like exploring is sort of both the goal of your organization and the like thrust of the game. Yeah, and while it is impractical to do so, from the very moment you leave the intro cutscene, you can just walk wherever you want. Like the whole world's open to you, basically. As, I mean, assuming they don't drop some secret late game area, you know, that's locked behind story progress, but uh. You can just walk wherever, uh, any of the five continents. If you can dodge aggro, if you can swim around and stuff, like you can just go. Um, you will want to go to town and pick up missions and like advance the story first, but it's just cool that the, it really is an open world. And I, I have extreme open world fatigue, just like you do, Rob. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this world's design is so it's far mm-hmm. and above usual because much like Xenoblade, I think has Chronicles original Xenoblade Chronicles has one of the most uniquely designed and realized worlds I've explored in an RPG. This is like it's similar. It's not quite as novel, I guess, because it's just it's an alien planet versus two dead gods. Um, but it's still it's so unique. There are so many amazing vistas, and it's all. Yeah, it's and it's it's, it's also great. what what surprises me about the breadth of the world is that. <clears throat> excuse me. What surprises me about the breadth of the world is that. You have these very prototypical sort of biomes, like desert place, jungle place, um, but much like with Xenoblade, I'm going to call it Shulkblade from now on. Much like with Shulkblade, <laughs> they do a lot within the framework of that, where it's. You know, it doesn't just feel like you're like, oh, look, a desert. Like, there's interesting, you know, rock outcroppings. There's, you know, the I, I think the combat is great. Um, but, you know, it all sort of works narratively. Like, it was clearly thought through how these things relate and how this planet as an ecosystem operates. Um, yeah, one of, one of the yeah. things that you can see passively is um, you can just see creatures wandering around. And some of them are hostile, some are not. Uh, in the starting area, you see these gigantic sort of they're brachiosaur or something alien like dinosaurs that are 80 levels above you and they won't aggro you, but they're just sort of peacefully grazing or um, drinking from this lake. So you can see them. And then sometimes you'll see monsters like spiders will fall down from the ceiling and worms will come like gigantic sandworms will come out of the sand in the desert. I got killed by one of those sandworms. This entire ecosystem happening. It's all there. It existed before the humans got there and you're just sort of, stumbling upon it yeah the dinosauruses won't aggro you unless you do an area of effect attack on top of them right <laughs> which i which can you found out the hard way from experience confirm is a bad idea yeah well a bad idea in that it probably got you killed but like the originals in a blade you don't really get penalized for it yeah. so why not experiment yeah. they uh the the world the map is built around a system of hexes. So each hex has like objects of interest in it. And once you've cleared a hex of everything of interest, you know, potential quests, tyrants, whatever, uh, it, it shows up as reconned on the map. Uh, and almost every hex has a teleport point. So it's, there's a lot less, I died. Now I have to run across the map to get back where I need to be. And 
furthermore, there's a sprint button, and you jump like an NBA player. So uh, <laughs> even before you... White man can jump. <laughs> you jump like the Hulk. I think that's more accurate. Uh, you got killed by a dinosaur. I did get killed by Texas. a dinosaur. Jump like an NBA player. Uh, just completely knocked him out. <laughs> Sorry. It, it makes getting around a lot more fun because, like, you know, there's a certain design philosophy where it's like you shouldn't be able to jump 60 feet in the air across the map. That's that's ridiculous. But it's like this game is sort of about the joy of getting around this world. So, like, half of the fun I have in that game is sprinting and then leaping from, like, mountaintop to mountaintop. It's not that extreme, but you have a lot more jump than Shulk did. And the game is sort of designed around that, around that. Like, you can find, like, clever ways to get up somewhere. Like, I had a quest. I had to go, like, run through this whole area and fight all these jerks with guns. And instead, I just went around back and leapt up the side and then walked in and finished the quest and left. Yeah. A lot yeah. of games have those sort of... Uh... Like, you'll see the rocky outcroppings that look like you might be able to kind of fudge your way up if you mess around long enough. Like, gl- almost glitch up. But uh, th- this actually encourages it. You can you can totally do that all over the place. Like, yeah, I had a, a quest where, not, not just that, but, like, I needed to get to a specific part on this one continent that was, like, way on the far edge of, like, the opposite side of where I had reconned. So I just ran to the closest edge that I could find jumped into the ocean and swam all the way around to the other side. It took me like actually five plus minutes real time, but I did it. And I was able to find a beach on the other side and get up there. So it, they, it encouraged. Yeah. They, they kept the secret areas from the first, because my initial concern, because you have the entire world map available to you when you enter an area of all the hexes. Um, but what's in each one is not, revealed to you and so i was worried that it was going to be like nothing secret because it's all marked on the map but there's actually still quite a few like you'll enter a cavern and it's like you found an uncharted area uh and you know like secret stuff like that you know um for me what i like about that is one of the things i loved about the first game so much was especially towards the end just getting super powerful and like tweaking the hell out of your party and then hunting tyrants or like you know like super monsters and a, there's a, a faction you can join in the game that gives you points for fighting tyrants. So I literally, I, I sort of forgot about the story once I got to chapter six or whatever, and I was, I'm just roaming the map hunting tyrants. Uh, but it, you know, they, they really, within the gameplay and within the narrative, they really push home that you are exploring this world and that you're being rewarded for that based on based on what faction you join in the way you choose to explore. Like if you just like to go and find mesas and, you know, and chart uncharted stuff, you can join a division that specializes in that and get rewarded for doing that even more. Now the, the, the cynical argument to be had here is that you guys are talking about all this exploration, all this like going around the world. And that immediately makes me want to ask about the questing system in this game, which being an outside observer and I've read, you know, reviews and stuff, I can't speak to whether or not this is really happening, but I wouldn't be doing my show as the host, uh, my job as the host, if I didn't ask. Do you guys feel like there is a lot of copy paste content in this game? Do you guys feel like there's enough story content? Like, Derek, you talked a little bit about open world fatigue. It, are you still feeling any of that with this game? Or is it the the world, the breath, the scales, all of this is enough to kind of kind of keep those open world monotonous tasks that kind of come up in lots of games from kind of overtaking you. How do you guys feel about that? Um, I think narratively it's much weaker than the first game. Um, 
and there are a lot of go kill monster quests. In fact, I think almost every story quest I've done has been go hunt three of this or go do that. And that could change, but the story, from what I understand, is actually not that long. Um, and again, I, I don't know that for sure. That's more or less just hearsay. Um, but I got through half of the game's chapters in one weekend of playing for about 12 hours. Um, but again, there's a lot of like in between, like you have to explore. I would say it does have a lot of grind. Um, in my opinion, I mean, I, I can't speak for Derek or Caitlin, but I, I like it a lot. But I definitely doubt I will do everything in this game um, because, you know, you, you can sort of, you know, you can take on the real quest. They're like affinity quests that like, you know, you relate to party members and everyone does have good stories. Like the quests that involve story are pretty great. Um, but there's a lot of like there's still those go kill five of these or go find me five of these blue crystals. Um, but now you get them all from a board, which is good. You don't have to go talk to 5,000 people in town. You still get quests from people in town, but most of the tedious quests that you just do by doing other things are at the board. But I would say, like, on the whole, narratively, it's much weaker, and the quest design, I think, is sort of like the first Xenoblade, but now that the game is focused on these things, uh, you, I could definitely see someone getting tired of that, but I think that the combat and exploration are so good that the objectives you're doing are not as big a deal. And it, it does have the auto turn in thing. Yeah. Xeno, did the original have that as well? Yes. Were you, okay, yeah. yeah. So it's I like mean, for, you, for it's most like, quests. Unless, yeah, if it was like a person you had to talk to to continue a story thing or like a, a side quest with someone's narrative, you had to talk to them. I think they did a better job here of compartmentalizing different kinds of quests. Like the ones from the original yeah. play that were really grindy where it was literally just go kill this um, unique monster or collect a certain number of this collectible. Um, you get the pretty much all of those from, they're called basic missions because they're the, the most, you know, uh, they basic as hell. yeah, basic. <laughs> and you get them from a board. You don't have to do any of those missions. If you don't want to outside of, I think a few are required for triggering affinity quests. But otherwise, you can leave them alone if you want. I mean, you'll get experience and rewards from them, but you don't have to. You won't see like a quest icon pop up on your map, and it's just going to be a bunch of kill these monsters like in the original Xenoblade, where you would be kind of compelled to do them because you saw the icon on the map and or, or over someone's head, and you're like, oh, hey, a quest. I need to do that. If you want them, they're on the board. If you don't want them, you never have to touch them for the most part which was a good move on their part to, you know, have it be there if you want, but not f kind of for the OCD person, have it like glaring right in their face. Oh, unfinished quest. Yeah, it actually mirrors the quest system in Lightning Returns, now that I think about it, because that had the, uh, what, the canvas of prayers or something. They, they basically had like the fetchy quest of kill X number of things, collect X number of things. And those were separate from the actual side quests that involved any sort of narrative. Um, and then you have the main story quests in that. So this is actually the same format because you have the basic missions, which are collect X number of things. You have the normal missions, which are a little bit more narrative heavy. Um, you have the main story missions. And then on top of that, you have the affinity missions, which um, in in original Xenoblade Chronicles, there were the heart to hearts that were just sort of little cutscenes that you unlocked with people as you raised your affinity with each party member or even between two other party members besides Shulk. Um, and in this one, they have the affinity missions, which are storyline specific missions that involve particular characters and they're i mean they're pretty robust um, yeah. and many of them are required at certain points to progress the story so it'll be like 
to unlock chapter five because you you get your story quests from a central hub area. So it'll be like to unlock chapter five, you have to do um, this particular affinity mission with this person and also have mapped 20% of one continent or something like that. Uh, so I think that the reason why it, it gates story that way is because some of those character quests um, develop that character in such a way that is relevant to the main plot. But yeah. otherwise, there are tons of other affinity quests that you don't have to do at all. But if you have a particular part of party member that you like, and there are many of them, there's over 18, 10. I think. Oh, yeah. geez, 18? Yeah, there, yeah, there are a ton of people to choose from. Five in DLC, I think, right? Or yeah, three, which or... we got for free. Yeah. yeah. So That's if, if there's a character you like, five. which you should find, because there are that many, um, you can choose to do that character's affinity missions and then overlook all the rest, uh, besides the few mandatory ones. So by splitting its quests into these sort of different tiers, I think that it does a really good job of allowing the player to select how they want to devote their time. It's like, do you just want to go run around the world and explore without any particular objective okay then take a bunch of basic quests and you'll be completing them automatically as you're doing whatever you want to do do you want to advance the story you can take a story quest do you want to get to know a character do an affinity quest like it just i think that they've learned a lot about how to structure their quests in this game and it doesn't it lends itself well to this world yeah yeah i agree i think they all sorry getting good no i was gonna agree um and I was going to agree with you as well about, I also think that the main story is, it's weaker than Xenoblade. It's, I don't want to say it's disappointing. It's just, if you go into it expecting the same kind of story mm-hmm. from the original, it's not going to be what you expect. Because the, really the focus of the game, I feel, it's not as much of that sort of epic journey, a quest to destroy the evil enemy. It's more of like, hey, this is our home now, this this a vast, dangerous place, and we have to learn how to it's, live in it. It's a world evil gorilla. Evil gorilla yeah. has chased us here. They do. And do I guess, and that's when I think about it in that sense, it actually makes more sense to me that they kind of spread out story between what is, you know, quote unquote, main story and side stuff like affinity missions and normal quests that you can get from some of the residents of uh, New LA or NLA, which is the the main hub world. Oh, because that yeah, yeah, the music. I wanted to, I wanted to sing the, the new LA song. No, no more coffee for Stephen. No, that's no, that's the song that plays in New LA. Like, oh, some, the, well, I'm sure we'll talk about the music, but holy crap, it's it's that it's very is... very different, and some of it oh, is yes. good. Most of it is good, yes. but it's it's super different. Um, and I'm stuck on a different planet. Like I think, like the story, you gotta. If you're expecting music from the last game, this is not probably. It's gonna surprise you, maybe in a good way. I, I I've, think... I've seen a lot of people who at first were like, "Uh," and then they played it and they're like, "Wow, this is actually pretty good." Should they have Absolutely. called? Go I ahead, totally um... agree with that. Like the thing is, a lot of people are like telling me on Twitter, like, "Oh God, how do you like that song? It's so bad." And I'm like, "Well, no, I'm like, it's different." Like. A lot of people, and I again, and this goes back to what I've been saying for months that this should not have been called Xenoblade Chronicles X. It should that, have been called like, yeah. it should have been called like Xeno World Space Ninjas or whatever the hell they want to call it. I don't care, but it shouldn't have been called Xenoblade. I get why it's called that because systemically it's the same, but like it's it's so unreal. That I, expectation is making people expect a a very JRPG story, and this is very not like you know character based. You know, go chase the bad guy, like Caitlin said. Uh, the music fits the sci-fi setting really well. My roommate would disagree if he could hear me because he he heard the some of the music and he's like, "That is 
that is terribly not fitting, but I think it fits the sort of dirty, like grim sci-fi fit of feel of the game really well. And I would challenge anyone playing that game not to get really excited when you fight a tyrant and the tyrant yes. battle scene starts. Because oh that's like, I'm going to start doing backflips and kill this dinosaur. I think I, um, I, probably, I mentioned this on Rhythm Encounter because I picked that theme on one of our last episodes, but I did not think that they could make a track, a music music track that could beat You Will Know Their Names from the original Xenoblade, but they kind of did because Uncont- Uncontrollable is kind of just freaking awesome. So. I, think- okay, I have a, I have a two, two-tiered response to that. Number one, because it's Hiroyuki Sawano and, th- and that particular theme has Mika Kobayashi on vocals. It just sounds like you're playing an episode of Kill the Kill, first of all. And that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it does. Second yes. of all, um, I actually have a theory about the sort of uh, the design of Xenoblade Chronicles X, and it's that whereas Xenoblade Chronicles original was like a sort of MMO-styled game with like open, bigger world MMO-style game, but with the kind of JRPG linearity structure, character focused narrative thing. Like that, that, that was what that was going for. And then this is um, something of a more Western approach to that same idea. Uh, so it takes, like it takes the parts of Xenoblade Chronicles original that were more like linear and flips them on their head. And um, like with the music, I feel like the music is also, <clears throat> also a more Western take. Um, and to me, like the the feeling that I get from that soundtrack is kind of like contemporary humans trying to find meaning or trying to find their their feet in a strange environment um, because the, there's like the juxtaposition of the intensely alien, unusual environs and creatures with this like sort of dirty. Uh, there's a lot of like hip hoppy vocals. Um, like it's very it's very human. It's very earth like. And there, it's this earthy music on an alien planet. So I think that it actually works pretty well. Yeah, I, you know, I think there are probably more tracks on this one that are that I outright balk at maybe than the first one. Uh, you know, to say there's like three or four as opposed to none. But <laughs> you know, it, like as an example, I think the singer in the main battle theme, and I know uh, Sawano works with this singer a lot, and to me, he just sounds like Diet Lotus Juice. Isn't it- I was going to say, it sounds just like Lotus Juice. Like, it's, I, I think, and the problem is that it's not necessarily just that the words don't work, because I don't mind the words, because I think the the duet in Uncontrollable, the Tyrant battle theme, is amazing. Like, yes. when, like the, the guy starts singing, and then the woman sings the counter verse, like, oh my god, it's so good. But, yep. like, in the main battle theme, like, what he's saying is complete nonsense. He's like, well, no, it's not nonsense, it's too on the nose. He's like... This planet sucks. I need a bigger gun. Whoa! Like, yeah, yeah, I'm right. like, no, no, you, you don't get to sing about exactly what I'm doing. Plus, I'm gonna get a bigger gun. I'm gonna get a big robot. I think it's are you wait? That. Are you saying that if that. you were playing Bastion, if, if the narrator started breaking out into some rap hip hop about what you were literally doing, you wouldn't find that cool? Well, but that's that's what he does. That he's the narrator. The singer of the battle theme in Xenoblade is like, it's different. Look, I'm not well. The good thing is that same are actually different. The good thing is most of the battles are brief enough that you probably won't be hearing the lyrics that much. And even if you get to them, you probably won't hear them over the chatter between your party members. Which all right, topple them with gunfire. Let's go. Use an aura. Killing machine. I was just listening to that. That is pretty awesome. 
Like right. uh, I, I was just listening to Uncontrollable because Steven was like, you need to listen to this. I'm like, all right, rolling my eyes at whoa. See? See, 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 see? Knew Rob would like it. That's, that, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Now, uh, something that I haven't heard a whole lot about with this game, and I'm kind of surprised because they it, it's one of the first things they showed about it, or at least hinted at. How's the online? Talk, talk to me a little bit about the online of this game. It's actually, it's really cool the way they've implemented it. Um, yeah, it's unobtrusive. At the start, like, um, you join squads that can have up to, what, 32 people in them, I think. And you don't, it's not that you see everyone running around. It's sort of like a, uh, what was the word that they used to describe it? Um, Asynchronous? Yeah. Yeah, like, you'll see their avatars, but they'll be, like, NPCs that you can talk to and recruit and into your party. And when you do, they're controlled by the AI, not by like the actual person playing them. But while you're playing in the squad, you'll get periodically these tasks. It'll be like kill a certain number of monsters or gather a certain number of items and or collectibles. And every time you complete one of those things, you'll activate missions that you can go on with your squad mates. And then you can actually pair up in like groups of four and play with the other people to take down like a particularly dangerous indigen or something like that. Yeah. And if you do enough of those, like uh, if not just like your squad, but if everyone playing the game does enough of that, you'll unlock a really dangerous uh, monster called like a world nemesis or something like that. And then everyone can work together to to take that thing down. So it's cool the way they have it start off. Like if you don't want to do like, like traditional online co-op where you're playing with other people, you don't have to. You can do the squad tasks, which are just you running around doing things. But if you want to play with other people, you can, and it gives you kind of a goal to work towards to be able to play in squads with other people. Yeah, actually, I had Caitlin in my party for a little while. Um, I went to go do a mission, and uh, we had just joined squads. And, uh, like, Caitlin's character is Emeralda from Xenogears and looks just like her. Thank Um, you. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, so I, um, you know, the, actually that brings me to one of my complaints about the story is that most of the story missions have compulsory members, and it's almost always so far been the same two. Yeah, and, and, and it's hard to use other characters in the story because they very often will restrict that. Um, so oftentimes I have an empty fourth party slot where it's like, oh, who am I going to use? And I went and was doing a story mission, and Caitlin happened to be there. So Caitlin joined my party for that. <laughs> And she has uh, Fiora's voice, so it was Shulkin Fiora battling, and it was awesome. Uh, yes, very awesome. Uh, yeah, I couldn't. I I knew I was gonna make Emeralda. This the mo- the minute that we were told that you would create customize your avatar, I was like, I'm making Emeralda because the art style of the way the character, you know, the uh, sort of like the anime style look of the characters is ob- you know very reminiscent of Xenogears and Xenosagas. So it's like the perfect way to create if your favorite character from the Xeno universe in this game. So of course yeah, I make them all Yeah, I agree. Um, we, we sort of hinted at it a little bit, and I'm forgive me if I'm stealing your thunder here, Rob, but I also like the combat in the game, like, I've heard some people say they don't like it because it plays sort of like an MMO, and I disagree. Uh, it's it's MMO-inspired, but there's a lot more, at least to me, because you're in control of more things, it's a little more active. Um, the base system is the system from the first Xenoblade. Um, but they've made a few small changes, and one of them is that now that you pick your own class, 
you go through like a tree. Like I picked a class that wields two guns and two uh, knives. And so you can press Y at any time to swap between your gun and your melee weapon. And you have arts that are dedicated to each. And so like you also now have a, a special meter, like TP that builds up that you need to use to use your more powerful attacks. Um, and so the gun weapon, at least in my class, the gun attacks tend to be much better at building up the special meter and like weakening the enemy. And then I switch to my melee weapon and charge in. And it's based on it. hits. Yeah, and then uh, you charge in and do a ton of damage. Um, and what's cool is that as you, if you master the skill tree you're in, you actually gain the ability to use that weapon with other skill, other classes. So I mastered the first tree that lets you use dual, dual machine pistols and dual swords, and then moved on to one that uses a spear and a sniper rifle, and it's awesome. Um, and so, like, as you level more and more, you're getting access to more and more arts, and you sort of get the ability to sort of create your own character type. Um, and that combined with the fact that, so now in the first game, when your skills were recharging, you know, you just couldn't do anything with them. You would just sit there and, you know, auto attack in this one. Now you have an option. So your skill will recharge. And then if you're wielding that weapon, a second meter will slowly fill up around each skill. And as you let the meter fill up, it increases the potency of the skill. So like, for example, backslash does a ton of damage from behind. So rather than doing what I did in Xenoblade 1, which is every time I got backslash, immediately trying to either activate a chain or do a ton of damage from behind, now it's like, oh, well, why don't I use my other skills to build up a really good combo by the time backslash is charged to its second level, then it does like 400% more damage. Um, but then there's like emergencies where it's like, oh, no, I have to use my art now that makes me heal when I attack because I'm dying. So it's like there's a lot more that you're thinking about at any given moment. Um, at least for me, that's, that's what it seems like. Um, and that's to say nothing of the soul voice thing, which is every party member has a soul voice, which is like different conditions in battle will happen. They're sort of like gambits where like, oh, if you do a critical hit, then Elmo will yell, Ooh, the enemy is weak. Now we should move in and do a thing. And then certain arts that you have will chain with theirs and it'll increase the effect. And, you know, it's, it's actually fairly complicated. The game has a lot of complicated systems that it makes relatively little effort to explain. But the net result is that I think the combat is fantastic. And for me, who what I love most about the first game at the end was just hunting monsters. It really is just awesome to just explore the world and find super monsters and then just get into these really interesting, like strategic, you know, movement heavy battles that work really well. Also, you can jump in combat now. Mm-hmm. And, and run and sprint. Too. And sprint, yeah. So if an enemy like dashes away from you, you can sprint up to an attack again. Or uh, shoot it. That was maybe the only thing about Xenoblade Chronicles, the original game, that I never felt fully comfortable with was like, because I only played the game as Shulk, which I, I would say a lot of gamers probably did. I don't want to say every gamer did, but I, you know, I primarily played as Shulk so I could use the Monado and kind of focus in on backslashes and stuff. But I'm really there, feeling it. There were moments that I really didn't understand how combat was working, but I almost find that to be a good thing because the AI was so smart that, like, Sharla was healing me when she needed to heal me. And so when I ran into problems in that game and I got killed, I would usually just go back and level up two or three times and then just steamroll whatever just killed me. So it was weird in that I never felt like I fully grasped the combat system. But I almost mean that as a good thing. Like, I knew what, what my role was in combat playing as Shulk, and I could focus in on that, and the AI was smart enough to keep me alive. Do, do you guys kind of feel that way in this game? Can you move between characters during combat? You can only control your guy, but it's not like Shulk, where you only have one set of skills. Your character 
every character in the game is comprised of skills that you could also acquire, and then they have a few unique ones that they gain through quests and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, whatever role you want to have, you can be that skill tree, basically. Like, I, I basically play Shulk. I play a heavy damage class. And, you know, so my role is I'm doing similar considerations to what I did as Shulk in the first game. But, like, if you want to be, like, more of a support base or if you want to set up combos, there are other skill classes that do that. Like, if you want to use Ryan's weapon, the shield thing, you can do that, you know, and so on and so forth. There's no, I don't know that any class gets a dedicated healing spell in this one because of the way the combat is built. There are there are a couple of skills that are that will directly heal you. None of them are like a super duper heal. Like you know, Sharla had really powerful heals because she was your primary healer. But I think that's intentional with the way they designed the system. I think they looked at combat in the original Xenoblade and said that a lot healing isn't super necessary in that game. You actually do not need the dedicated healer for most of the game because you, battles are either over quickly enough or what healing skills that you do have, like Shulk has a basic heal, gets you through. So they actually, kind of... What? Good. Uh, I was going to agree with you because I disagreed with you when I was playing Xenoblade because I kept telling you that I was like really annoyed that I had to have Sharla all the time or somebody that could heal. And you're like, oh, you don't. I'm like, yeah, but then I'll die. She's like, no, you'll do more damage. And then I switched to my party, which was... The last character you get, Dunban and Shulk, and then you win battles so much faster that you're not needing to heal. Yeah, that's kind of the trade-off. And I think they, they thought about that here, too, because you don't have a dedicated healing class and you don't really have a lot of healing skills. You heal by uh, performing soul voices, so like using the skills that your party members are calling for. And then, uh, you know, the, the, the B uh, button prompts where it's like the circle and you have to time the, bu- the button press uh, correctly will also get you uh, a little bit of uh, HP restoration. So it's Which... more about paying attention to your party and having, you know, maybe a little bit of a QTE, but a manageable one and one that doesn't necessarily feel punishing or anything. And you can, through the soul voices and through fighting well, again, I like what you said, Caitlin, about by being really proactive and paying attention to combat, you can keep yourself healed. Um, and I really like that system because it's not that I dislike the DPS tank healer role thing that's so popular in a lot of games, but this sort of lets you think about the battle on like a broader set in a broader sense than just, all right, well, I'm going to have to get healed because I'm definitely going to take damage. It's like, no, if I set up this combo, I'll get my B button prompt and I can heal. And then, you know, like as my character class, I have a skill that cuts my HP in half, but it, gives me a thousand uh, TP so I can immediately do like a blast attack really quickly. And then I have a skill that costs TP that makes every attack I do heal me. So it's like, I'll use that, do a ton of damage with that skill active and regain the health I lost. And then because I'm fighting, if you fight well and you're working with your party, you're getting those B button prompts. So like basically the way to keep stay alive is to fight well. I like that that strategy. It works well for me. It works well in every game, in fact. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. But yeah, it. I, I think the combat is just awesome. Like it's it's refined in the right places from Xenoblade, and like it's clear that they knew what the critiques of the combat in the first one were. Like, oh, an enemy gets away and I can't catch them, or you know, I can't jump in combat, so I get stuck behind a wall. Uh, you know, it's just it it feels mechanically a lot more polished, even though on the surface it looks like it's almost the same thing. 
then again, eventually you get a giant robot that can punch people's faces off. The so, scales, I mean, man, the scales. Yeah. I can't talk about that. Only Derek can. You're the only one that has a big robot. Can you fly yet? Scales, I cannot fly yet. <sighs> I don't have to unlock the scale after doing a rigorous uh, series of proficiency <laughs> in Chapter 6, or after Gosh. Chapter 6. And then I think you learn to fly in Chapter 9 or something. Which is fine. Like, I'm happy that that's gated, because I don't want to be able to just fly wherever I want right off the bat. Um, I agree. And, and see, so, yeah. That sense of power progression seems to be what everybody's really talking about. It's like to start out on the ground in this game, going through the forests on foot, and then to eventually get the scales, and then the scales eventually fly. You know, not to to bag on The Witcher, because I really enjoy Witcher 3. That's a fantastic game, you know, easily in my top three of the year. But, like, whenever I finished a, mis- um, a mission or a quest in Witcher 3, I got some money and maybe I got a sword that was probably not as powerful as the current sword I was using. So there there wasn't really a power progression in that game. Like, I was playing it because the storytelling was so awesome. But when I see Xenoblade Chronicles X and the people that are really extolling the virtues of this game, they're talking about, like, this sense of power progression is what makes this game so special. Like, to go from, you know, being an ant on the ground to being, you know, flying around in this giant mechanized scale... Yeah, that sounds really, really cool. And I think that's something that a lot of open world games kind of have to have that self-reflection right now is like you need a power progression that makes you feel like you're getting stronger and stronger, like Fallout. And not just in terms of numbers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's really where I think Witcher kind of runs into some trouble. I think that's where Fallout runs into some trouble in some ways. Like Witcher 3, you level up as Geralt and that means that you you get to put a skill point into something and now like your fire spell does 50 more damage. See, and I, I, I I'm agree not with the concept of, of what you're saying. I agree with the concept of what you're saying here, but I think the Witcher is not, in my opinion, not the best example because I think a lot of the skills do let you change the way you play in the Witcher. Yeah, and then you realize art is the best thing ever and you just use that over and over again. You know, but that's the, how you chose to play. There are other ways to do it. Art is the best way to play that game. <laughs> Igni is thing. I, I like I, shields. It's it's not unique to Xenoblade X by any means, but um, it reminds me a little bit of the power progression in the earlier stages of MMOs like Final Fantasy XIV. Because mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. would liken getting a skill to like unlocking your mount or maybe unlocking your job or something like that. Or your flying chocobo. The flying, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say like that, that I, I feel like they kind of had a similar mentality to how flying's implemented in Heavensward, where it's you don't get access to it immediately. You have to sort of explore on foot to learn the land and appreciate it from that level before you can suddenly, because otherwise, you know, everyone would jump on their flying mounts or their scales and fly all over the place. And you, maybe you wouldn't see all the things, all the nooks and crannies that you can get Mm -hmm. from the ground. It's like, maybe, maybe you shouldn't have given me the power armor 15 minutes into fallout four. Like that. (laughs) Yeah. That, that was, that was kind of a shame. And like from a combat standpoint too, it lets you, you know, start off walking and then running and you can appreciate the scale a lot because Mm -hmm. you'll see those gigantic monsters that you cannot take on right now at your level or on foot. Even there are some monsters that you really need to fight in a scale and they'll be there as that sort of goal for you to get to. And every stage you'll get maybe larger monsters and more impressive monsters. And then, then suddenly you're fighting them in your scales and they are towering over your scale. And you're like, you're like wow. flying around them, punching them, and 
Yeah, I mean, just imagine like going from being a single-player-created avatar, just a single person on the ground, to having a party of four giant robots swarming around an ancient dinosaur thing. Like, and, yeah, and then I, so I, cool. I think it's also important to then say that that's probably why... I, I think divisive is a strong word for this game, but I, I did see some review scores that were a little all over the place. Like, people seem to genuinely like it, but... I think that that slower burn that kind of focused on this power progression, not giving you everything right away, kind of making you work for it. You know, some people say, I didn't get my skills until 30 hours in, and it was amazing. And then other people are saying, I didn't get my skills until 30 hours into the game. Like, I think that that kind of is a moment for, for the individual as a gamer of like, are you okay with this sense of power progression? I don't think there's ne- necessarily a bad thing if you don't want to play a game like that, but it sounds like it's kind of important to realize that this is a slower burn game that makes you, as Caitlin was saying, crawl before you fly. Just like Final Fantasy XIII. Um, mm, mm, I'm not going there today. I'm not going there today. I think it's sort of endemic to a problem of expectation in a lot of modern gaming, and yeah, I'm going to ban this thing. But a lot of people are like, why can't this be Assassin's Creed where I have access to the whole world right away and I have all my cool weapons and I can do everything immediately and Shadow of Mordor is so good because I can go everywhere. Like, you shouldn't be able to go everywhere in a game right away. Like, Fallout 4, again, I, I haven't played it much, but, like, you know, there's no reason to be able to do everything immediately. Like, yeah, give me freedom, yeah, but give me something to look forward, look forward to. to. Like, no, yeah, yeah like, I, I totally like, agree with that. Um, like, the skills, like... There's an area, like, so one of the main things you do when you first go to an area is you hunt down sites to plant probes that give you, like, recon of the area. Sounds an awful lot like lighthouses from Fallout, or from Assassin's Creed, and it kind of is. Um, and then, so once you do that, you know, you get that part of the map marked, and you get more fast travel locations. But then there are areas that you distinctly can tell you can't get to, and you, like, look up at the top of this giant mesa that is, like, unimaginably high above you, like, just ridiculously high above you and it's like wow someday i can get up there and like that's the kind of thing that i think a lot of modern open world games lack is that in their mad dash to give you everything right away and let you just do whatever you want they forget that in third when i've done that for 20 hours i'm gonna be bored yeah so in xenoblade you play for 30 hours you start to get bored then you can punch people with cannons that that's then you start to get bored (laughs) then you can fly that that's actually the part of uh, a game that we were we were kind of debating whether or not we were going to cover it, but we ended up falling down on the side of no. Um, was a game called Dying Light, which came out in January, and like the first time you start playing Dying Light, like the sense of movement in that game is really incredible. Like it, it starts making you go like, wow, maybe Assassin's Creed from first person view mode with this uh, this gameplay would be really impressive. But then I started to realize, like, five or six hours in the game, I'm doing the same thing over and over again, and the power progression really isn't here. Like, I'm getting, as we talked about before, the new weapon that does 22 damage instead of 10 damage, and yeah, now I have a dropkick move that is very situational and I don't use very often. Like, why don't you give me, like, some... I know there's some stuff in that game, so it's not a perfect metaphor, but it's like... I got bored with the game at the moment it should have been opening stuff up, and to make it all the way back the connection to Assassin's Creed, I think Assassin's Creed 2 was really, really good about that. Like, that game had a sense of power. I mean, that was basically a game that if you had replaced Ezio with Bruce Wayne becoming Batman. (laughs) <laughs> it would have it really would have worked like, you know, he loses his family. He then starts gaining powers. He gets better at what he's doing. He gets better at combat. He gets this new ability. He gets this new ability that there's not to cut his finger off. Yeah, he like, cuts, you know, there's this Batman year one. There's this really awesome power progression in that game that I, I loved. And I agree with you guys. I think 
open world games are missing that a little bit, and maybe that's why this game is is kind of throwing some people for a loop because they are expecting the Assassin's Creed. I'm going to be amazing ten minutes into this game, whereas it's kind of fun to be a little janky at the start. There's a. I was reading some comments. Um, it was an article quoting Shigeru Miyamoto, and it, uh, it was talking about his philosophy to game design. And I, I don't know the article well enough to quote it, but um, he said something to the effect of he wants to see his player progressing. And once they, they hit their stride, that's when he gives them power-ups or sort of like adds to the adds layers upon the design or the power or the control that the player has. Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of a... I guess it sounds simplistic, but I think it's important to remember that um, a lot of why... I mean, I guess everybody games differently, but for me, a lot of why I find games enjoyable... I mean, I, I play games mostly for for narrative, for immersion, um, you know, to enjoy music and, and and nice visuals and art design and stuff. But I think that when it comes down to gameplay mechanics, um, it's important to have progression. Because if you start a game that's sort of, like, I don't know, if it's, if it's unilaterally the same game all the way through, I think that can get kind of tedious. But it's it depends on the kind of game, I suppose. But I think that there's... I'm glad for one that Xenoblade has a little bit of gating in terms of like when you get to access stuff, because like I said, I'm about 30 hours in. I'm just shy of 30 hours and uh, I just got the scale. And when I got it, it was like, holy crap. So I just, I got in the scale and I was just doing donuts in the desert while lightning crackled. <laughs> like, oh yeah, your scale can turn into a race car. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Did I, did I forget to mention that? Cause that, that happens. Cause that, cause that's awesome. Yeah. I, so, uh, Progression, I think, is is valuable, and I think it's. I'm very much behind the game design of like, don't give the player everything right away. Let them sort of discover it. Maybe not as slowly as some games drip feed you, but well, that's that's an uh, that's an interesting point because um, there are a lot of systems in Xenoblade uh, in this game, Xenoblade X, and the game introduces you to some of them, like the really basic ones, but it doesn't like throw a lot of tutorials uh, uh, as we some of the more finer points there's a there's a you know an in digital manual that you can refer to that does actually explain a lot of the smaller things that aren't presented to you through like the main story and whatnot so there's a lot for you to explore and to learn as you go and instead of having it all thrown in your face all at once it's it's a bit more of a natural kind of thing it can be frustrating if you're like you know you can do something, but you don't know how, or you see this thing and you don't know what it means. But then I pull up the manual and I find the heading and I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. And then I know how to do it. And I kind of, I like that, that sort of approach that they did. They put a lot into the game, but they don't beat you over the head with all of the mechanics. And, you know. I, I know that's polarizing, but it, and but I actually like that. It reminds me of one of my favorite parts of Dark Souls, which is playing that game the first time. And like, I didn't. I, I hate looking things up in guides. So like in Xenoblade, it's like I don't know how this works. Hey, Caitlin and Mike, do you know how this works? Uh, no. Oh yeah, I know. This is what it is. Or like you know, oh here's what this is. Like exchanging information. Like it's it's very much what I liked about the first Dark Souls, which is what the hell is a covenant? How does that work? Wait, what's happening now? Why are bats attacking me? Who are these red people that are stabbing me? Like you know and discovering that is sort of part of the fun. I feel like the tendency, especially Japanese games have, is to be like, here's every single thing that's going to be in our entire game and how it works in fine detail through a series of YouTube videos exploring every single thing. 
And not that Xenoblade didn't have that, but Xenoblade is so complicated that it didn't matter. I, but, I, um, you know, it's just like, you don't, don't, like, it's fun to learn how these things work, not to just be told immediately and be expected to master it, because then again, there's no sense of growth. I, I know this might sound like very, uh, tan- like, off topic or like something very minuscule, but I was playing a little bit of Shadow Complex because it finally came out on PC. And I realized a couple things about myself as a gamer and how I take in information. If you try to give me something to read in a video game while I'm playing it, so like press up when you're jumping in order to latch onto this, like, and I still have full control over my movement right there, my brain goes in two different directions and I'm like the most indecisive person in the world. Like, I can't process what I'm seeing. Like, if what I'm reading is super important in a game, and this gets to what you guys are talking about with, like, game play systems and how a game teaches you how to play, if what you're trying to teach me is so damn important, please pause the game and let me read it. Like, getting a tutorial in the middle of a boss fight, like, hey, you should try to sneak around this guy while you're fighting him, like, while he's trying to blow the crap out of me? Like, I don't want to read that right now. Like, I'm trying to avoid getting shot right now, and you're trying to give me information like Batman Arkham, the Arkham games were really bad about that in combat. Like they, I don't want to be reading something while I'm playing it because one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to read and I'm not going to play or I'm going to play and I'm not going to read. If something is crucially important to what I'm doing, like how to play the game, pause it or slow it down or do something to explain to me how to play the game. I actually think that Rampa does a pretty good job of explaining all of its its trial mechanics by giving you, like, an example before you have to do it. Like, and that was a moment where, like, I could read through and understand the tutorial. And I don't, I, I don't mean to say that every game needs to have a tutorial, but, like, please, if information is important, let me read it. Let, let me kind of breathe it in a little bit. I'm sorry that that was such a tangent, but, like... That was really, like, Shadow Complex drove me up a wall because it's trying to give me a tutorial in the middle of a boss fight. Like, well, Xenoblade does not do that, so you don't have to worry about <laughs> that. Is the, is the manual in the game very extensive? Like, could Steven have figured out all that information by reading through the manual? Uh, a lot of it, actually, yeah. And, it's oh, it's a, there. Well, it's right there on your gamepad, but... Well, yeah, yeah, like, it's right, it's all the way over there, meaning I'd have to open it, but... <laughs> much easier for me to get up, walk to my room, pick up my phone, text Caitlin, wait for her to reply because we're in different time zones. <laughs> we, we should probably uh, take a second for the younger viewers. Manuals are little booklets that used to come in video games that explained how the hell to play a video game. Sometimes they were colors. Sometimes they had little comic books in them. And they were about? really cool. And the irony is that those games weren't as complicated. I know. Yeah. Like, games yeah. today are so damn complicated. Like... Oi, I, I I bought Pillars of Eternity, and I want you to know that I bought Pillars of Eternity, and I just opened the manual, and I just went, "Oh dear God!" Like, ah, Baldur's uh, Gate had a three hundred page manual. I, <gasps> actually, I I feel bad because a couple of my students this year on the same test suddenly started getting nosebleeds, and I I think that that probably says something about that test. But that is how I felt looking at this manual for this game. Was like, this is really intimidating. Now, luckily, the manual is brilliant and it gives you all the information. But like, Stephen's right. Games are super complicated these days, and they're kind of leaving their the way they tell you how to play in tutorials. If you walk away from a game and try to come back to it and you're in the middle of that game, like I tried to come back to playing Dying Light. Thankfully, that game has an in-game manual for me to pour over because I was completely bamboozled when I tried to jump back into that game. 
Like, how do I play this? But that's neither here nor there. I think you are all big on Xenoblade, and we could talk about it endlessly, but uh, we, we, do have to, we do have to walk away from it. Actually, when we finish this podcast, I'm going to walk over to it. Yes. Yeah, same. I, I have it, well, I have it on right now. I'm not playing it, but it's, it's on, so. I'm playing Crisis Core. Again, because Crisis Core is awesome. Really wish that game was on my Vita. They can't. It's rights. It's not. It's actually, I, you know, it's uh, it's uh, available digitally in the Japanese PlayStation Store. Oh, okay. Just uh, because I know that doesn't help you any, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure we will have more Xenoblades to talk about down the road. And yes. I'm really glad this game turned out to be awesome. It's kind of a nice treat for the end of the year. And uh, yeah, it's. I wish that. Friggin' everyone didn't do their game of the years in late November. Yeah. So this oh, be included. I gotta say, the Game Awards, I was like, their cutoff was only a few weeks away from Xenoblade, and I was like... It's just so stupid. So so what, <gasps> does it not get considered next year at all? Because, I mean, a year is long enough that people will kind of be like, oh, yeah, that came out. Yeah, that it? came I mean, out, right. I mean, yeah. time, time is a factor, like... It's not gonna. It's not gonna be fresh in people's minds next year when we've got Persona Five and Final Fantasy Fifteen. Like, come on now. Yeah. You think? <clears throat> come on, Patty. Uh. It, okay. So the video game awards. Just real briefly. Did, I don't mean to call out Jade Raymond. Did she seem drunk? I didn't see. She. She seemed really off. Like she came out, made this really weird David Hater not playing Snake joke. Oh, I missed that. And then they kind of made a mistake. Like, they, they screwed up the, the award that she was giving out because it went to the actress from uh, her story, but they labeled The Witcher 3, so that caused a little controversy. Like, the, the lead director for The Witcher 3 is sitting in the back going, what? Oh, um, yeah, I saw that part. Yeah, he was like, what in the world's going on? But she came out, and she was kind of like all over the place. Maybe she was just really nervous. Maybe the teleprompter had broken or something, but it was this... It was really awkward, but overall, I enjoyed the video game awards. Uh, it was it was fun again this year. I think that uh, Jeff Keighley's doing a good show. There were some good announcements in there. Uh, it was fun. Nice, nice tribute to Iwata. Yeah, I, that was that that yeah. got the feels. I, yeah. I got the feels. I did watch that. Reggie did a really good job, you know, talking about how important video games were, and it, it was just a really it was a really positive moment, and I was surprised how long it went. Like, they didn't, you know, get a hook or, or only give them, like, 30 seconds. Like, they made it a real a real moment in the middle of the show. And that, that was really cool. And then Konami got sick burned, like, five times. Oh, my God. And That's part of the show. And then What's-Her-Name said directly to, not directly to Keeper Sutherland, but to someone who was like, yeah, there's no snake without without David Hayter. That Hader. was Jade Rain. And I was like, what is up with all this freaking drama? Yeah. I actually, the cynic in me thinks it was all intentional to get more people talking about the show but i don't know even then like there was straight up a sequence where what's his name jeff Kaylee was like yeah konami wouldn't let kojima come <laughs> because they're mean yeah that was weird that was really weird uh, but like on the other hand like that's that's the kind of candor that you don't normally get in this industry from types like jeff Kaylee. although i actually think he probably gets a little more flack than is deserving considering how earnest he is yeah, uh, and for him to kind of call Konami out like that, I mean, and I, I know he's friends with Kojima like that. He was probably a little pissed, you know, like all of a sudden he's expecting Kojima to come out to this thing, and then apparently Konami says, no, you can't go out there. Like, that's kind of messed up. Because so, he has 30 days left on his contract. Apparently. Uh, my, my game Bloodborne kind of got snubbed at the Video Game Awards left and right, didn't really win anything, but... uh. I got a chance to play through the old Hunters DLC, uh, which, good lord, that thing is hard. Um, 
So Old Hunters kind of gives you three new areas and almost doubles the weapon count in the game, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, and it's it's really fantastic. I, w- I was very nervous going into this piece of DLC because I did not like the Dark Souls 2 episodes at all. I seem to be in a minority when it comes to that. A lot of people really like those pieces of DLC. Okay, I guess you like fighting you know giant enemies with giant weapons over and over again. That's cool. Also a ridiculous boss in the Fume Knight. But okay, to each their own. If they really enjoyed it, that's great. But this DLC felt so much more like Artorius of the Abyss in that it was adding not just a lot of new weapons, a lot of new enemy types, but also giving you you know, unique scenarios, different kind of traps than you had seen before, different environments. I found it funny that some reviewers were kind of like, you know, the environments are using a lot of reused assets. I'm like, yeah, the first environment out of the three... Did, did you get to the other two environments? Because, you know, looking at that trophy list, I seem to be one of the only people that beat that last boss, which, good God, he was hard. But it it's it's a really awesome piece of DLC that I would put up to the level of Artorius of the Abyss, and I think it, it fills in some really awesome story gaps. It was very enjoyable, and I, I think it was a good way for Bloodborne to end. And... What I said to Steven when we were kind of having our back and forth talking about Bloodborne, talking about Dark Souls 3 is, if Sony tomorrow announced Bloodborne 2, I'd actually be bummed. Like, I, I would actually be bummed out, because I actually... He says, no, right. no, no, I, I, I want those guys to make something different right now. I really, really want them to make something different. I enjoyed Bloodborne, I enjoyed Dark Souls, uh, those games are fantastic, I love them, but, you know, if, if we found out Miyazaki was making a science fiction game or something, I would be way more on board with that right now, because I've kind of seen a lot, and I've kind of played the same game, what, five times now? Like, uh, four times, well, Demon's Souls, Dark Souls, Dark Souls 2, uh, four times now, coming up on five with Dark Souls 3, and so I, I am feeling a little bit of that fatigue right now. I would I would be okay if they would do something a little different. But I, again, I seem to be in a very small minority when it comes to that. A lot of people are losing their minds over Dark Souls 3, and maybe that game will be fantastic. But I, I think it's time for something new. And I, I think back when Zach was... Sci-fi Dark Souls. Sci-fi you know, Souls. It's a funny story because um, I was the backup for Robert's uh, stream of the Old Hunters, and we actually kind of joked about that, about having kind of a uh, Dead Space meets Bloodborne kind of game and thought that would be really cool. I, so uh, do it, from software, Do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to see something because, you know, it, it, you can have too much of a good thing. I really do believe that, and it's it's time for them to do something a little different, but I think The Old Hunters is definitely worth your money if you're a big Bloodborne fan. It kind of sounds like nobody's really interested in talking about this game, and that's okay. I'll just continue to be the Bloodborne defender on this show. But No, we've, we've talked... We've, it's because we spent the entire week talking about Bloodborne by a text. And it's not that I don't like Bloodborne, and I definitely plan on beating it, but I do... I really feel like the weapon design in that game is great. Like, I think on a, like, polish and systems level, it is definitely Spirited Dark Souls, but I am never as excited to explore in Bloodborne as I was in Dark Souls. Uh, And I would say Bloodborne is more focused, and that's a good thing, and I'm definitely going to finish it and likely play this DLC. But it's just one of those things where, you know, you want... One does not simply just start playing Bloodborne again. Like you play and die six hundred times and remember and like I don't remember where anything is. I'm like in the Bloodstarved Beast Church and like you know, ten 
the last thing I remember was getting murdered by some witches in a forest, and then I killed the witches, and then I, and then I moved to Japan. But yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I I do disagree with you in a way because I think that especially with this DLC. So you know, I'm obviously using that argument. With this DLC comes a lot more build variety. They they've kind of made it so that arcane builds and blood tinge builds are a little better. Um, I would rather have the individuality of each one of these weapons versus the, okay, you have this type of katana, and then you have this other type of katana that has slightly different stats. But I will say, I, I do agree with you that I wish that they had gone a little fuller with their upgrade system, like lightning path, fire path, instead of having the gems. I don't think the gems quite replaced it as well as it could have, but man, that combat is fun. And the bosses that are in this in this DLC are really impressive i think they actually do a really good job of making it so that in, in the base game if you went co-op it was really easy to steamroll some of these bosses that's not the case anymore because these dudes they hit really really hard now but they are completely fair uh, and the thematic thing for me is like a couple of the missing story pieces from the base game have been you know re-added in or maybe they got a chance to expand upon them and the story that they're telling and the the focus on environmental storytelling is, I feel now, head and shoulders above the other Souls games to the point where it's almost hard to go back. Like, some of the some of the subtleties that they're doing with their, their storytelling, and I, I still refuse to reveal if you've somehow not had Bloodborne spoiled for you in terms of what's really going on in the story, hats off to you, because every reviewer in the world has tried to spoil what this game is really about, and... I, I personally have a huge problem with that. I think it's a great thing to experience. This would be like if you know people gave away a certain Metal Gear Solid game from 2001. Uh, it, it just works with that kind of twist in what's going on. And now it works even better because of some of the story beats that are in there. So, you know, play the old Hunters. If you didn't like Bloodborne, I don't think this is going to change your mind. But if you did really enjoy it, I think that you are going to love it even more now with all the expansion stuff that they've done. It's really, really impressive. So you're um you're really feeling it then? I am uh, really feeling it. Hey, the game made me go away from the axe. The game gave me a new weapon that I like more than the axe. I, I think that's saying something. Which, which weapon? Uh, the Beast Hunt Safe. The uh, kind of modified version of the saw cleaver that is a long sword in its regular form and then it's the the kind of very short dagger form that is super fast and has an awesome lunging attack that lets you really close in gaps really fast it's a hyper aggressive weapon and i just i fell in love with that thing interesting i I fell in complete love with that i was actually the the bosses in this dlc are so damn fast that just relying on like axe swings over and over again is going to get you killed like, how many how many bosses are there? Uh, there's five. So there's uh, uh, thank you, Caitlin, for for giving this to me because you <laughs> threw a, you threw a softball right up in the air. One of my biggest complaints about the Dark Souls Two DLC was the palette swaps because they just outright palette swapped a couple bosses, and I I think that's really cheap. They palette swap one boss. Somebody trying to get in there, or was that just skipping? Oh, I was just saying, then the Dark Souls... Oh, Dark Souls 2 DLC. Yes, two, two, not not one. Uh, there was... Uh, there's one palette swap boss in, in Bloodborne, but he's got a unique little trick up his sleeve when you get him down to half health, which is kind of cool. Uh, and then there's four other bosses. And I, I would say one of the four other bosses is a little lame, but then the other three are absolutely fantastic. Like... 
absolutely fantastic, awesome fights that I have actually enjoyed playing over and over again. Despite the fact that they're really hard. They are super hard, but I have really enjoyed playing them. I think that they they really show that combat system at its peak. The only complaint that I really have is that they show the combat system at its peak. So when when things go wrong, when like the camera flips out and you get killed because the enemies can hit you in one shot, I, I really want them to work on their camera system a little bit. A couple of the enemies rely on lots of jumping attacks, and we know what happens in a Souls game when the, when the enemy jumps up in the air. The camera kind of loses them, and all of a sudden you have no idea where they are, and you better just time your dodge correctly or you're dead. So there, there's a little bit of that, but overall I That's think... It, they they do a little bit of that, and I I'm not a huge fan of that. But but overall, they've made something really special. I I had a really good time with it. I could talk about it for a while longer, but just just go out and get it if you want to get it. Just try it out, you know. Just give it a shot. Just just give it a shot. Just just I do was, it. Sorry, I was quoting that comic that made fun of Dilbert a couple of years back. Just do it, man. Just check it out. NFL.com. Just do it. Just check it out. Oh well, actually, on that point, question. Uh, where does this take place vis-a-vis the main game? Do you have to have beaten the main uh, game in order to play it, or is it somewhere in between? So this is about a third of the way into the main game. It's after you beat uh, Vicar Amelia, which is in the uh, Cathedral Ward. After you beat her, which is kind of where the the game really opens up and kind of starts giving you some thematic changes, there's an item that shows up in the Hunter's Dream. You pick that up, and then you go to... A certain place and you can find that out online i don't want to give it away here and then that certain place takes you to this kind of offshoot area that is another separate dream from the main game they recommend that you be level 65 i think that's insane i think you need to be closer to level 90 and have a plus nine weapon because this dlc is really freaking hard like i went there originally at level 65 with a plus six and i got my ass handed to me (laughs) <laughs> like it, it was ugly it was really i think i caught a little bit of that in the stream where i wanted to be like you guys need more you, you guys need more health you need you need more damage because you're getting destroyed right now yes yeah, so it was very interesting to watch um because i, I it was good because i remember when we streamed um canehurst with you way back you didn't die at all and i think some people were actually a little bit disappointed that they didn't get to see you die well, so just that damn good or i got so, uh, lucky <laughs> Uh, it was that damn lucky. <laughs> so Robert died, and I think that was satisfying. Um, other Robert, not me. Yeah, the other. Well, he's Robert. You're Rob. Yes, I am. I am the Rob. I am the Rob. So it, it's really cool. It's really cool. It's an awesome way for them to end it. And now I just I want different stuff. And maybe Sci-Fi Souls is the way to go. But would you do Would you do ranged combat, or would you continue to do melee combat? I think you'd have to do ranged, wouldn't you? But that could be really interesting to see what they do with that and how yeah. they would uh, develop it from where how it's used right now as a sort of a you know secondary and a staggering tool. I think that was actually one of my favorite ideas for a game was when uh, when I played a little bit of Dead Space Three, which is not a very good game, but it it kind of had like um, some randomized elements and like you went on to different ships. And that you were dealing with enemies in different locations. And that part of the game worked. The microtransaction and weapon design was kind of terrible. And that's what ended up ruining that game. But I really liked the idea of having this sci-fi game in that kind of Souls, 
Metroidvania horror vein. And I, I think you could do a ranged combat system that was really interesting. And I love Dead Space 1 and 2. I was I was talking to a friend about it just tonight when we were uh, having our Starbucks. And I, I said to him, like, Dead Space 1 and 2 are the natural evolutions of Resident Evil 4. Like, they, those games are taking the Resident Evil 4 game design in a, in a cool place. And I think that, you know, from software making kind of an RPG sci-fi game, that would be really damn cool. But Yeah, I would totally be down for it. Like, Bloodborne was my first Soul game. It got me sort of interested. I'm now interested in Dark Souls 3, and I love Dead Space. I would feel like that could be a really interesting merger of those two ideas. To have that very dark, grim... I mean, Dead Space is already kind of dark and grim, but to even go a little, a little bit further and to see how they would design a sci-fi setting, like, that could be a really unique uh, take on sci-fi in general, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. Uh, so apparently we need to get working on that game right now because yes. that, that might be something. Too bad about that. Did you play 3? Did you play Dead Space 3? I, I haven't yes. gotten to it yet. Yeah, and it was, co- and they wanted you to play co-op, and it was just. Yeah, that the, was kind of a turn-off, actually. Making your own weapons was not very interesting. Universal am- ammo was beyond stupid. It was like just bad decision. It worked so well for Deus Ex too. Yeah, it was like bad decision after bad decision with that game, and it, even like the base. They, they even got the rhythm of the game wrong because it was like, it used to be that if you got hit in a Dead Space game, like, you got hit. Like, it, it's very Souls-like in that way. Like, you take a lot of damage. Dead Space 3 was like, you were getting hit all the damn time and, like, enemies wouldn't respond consistently. The, like, the whole point of Dead Space is you hit them and you can kind of do the juggling act like Resident Evil 4. Like, I'm going to hit this guy in the legs and I'm going to hit this guy in the chest. I'm going to hit this guy in the head. You're juggling enemies. You couldn't do that in three. Like, you would hit a guy twice in the leg, and then the third time they would just say, ah, screw you, and just run straight at you. And you're like, well, then what's the point? Like, what? Wh- so I should just fire as fast as I can. I shouldn't try to, to juggle them anymore. But we, we were just talking while Stephen was in, in the bathroom or whatever, but we were talking about how, like, make a Souls-like sci-fi game and maybe making it a focus on ranged combat. You might be able to do something really cool there. Well, I actually think I think Dead Space is a great example for that. Like, you know, make it a Dark Souls is already basically a survival horror game. Like Ben yeah. and I are talking about this a lot. The the best part of good survival horror games is when they put an obstacle in front of you that you don't want to confront and force you to confront it. Uh huh. <laughs> like in Resident Evil, you know what's going to happen in that hallway, but you have to go through anyway. Well, no, you don't. I, I don't and, have to go through there. I'm not going through there. No, 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 no. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's you know, you're managing your resources. Uh, and, you know, like, you make a Souls games have almost the same thrust. So, you know, you make a Souls game that's focused on range combat. And it's like, no, I do have to go through that scary spaceship tunnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we've beaten around the bush enough. Uh, I don't think we have anything else to talk about today no other no other news no other giant uh, controversies nothing no 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 we're no. good today right no not with the uh the intro that you that you <laughs> gave us we can't we can't ignore okay it. so so if you somehow have been living under a rock for the past week uh the playstation experience we got to see the first in-game footage of what is Shockingly. now what is now I, I know i was like holy crap 
the first in-game footage of uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake, which is apparently what they're calling it. Uh, <laughs> apparently, our Final Fantasy VII reunion just wasn't good enough. Like, you know, and it would have also been I, an R. In one way, I at least appreciate why they said they said they were like we didn't want to leave any thing to the imagination that this was a compilation of Final Fantasy VII thing. They were like, this is, they wanted people to know for sure this is the remake of Final Fantasy VII. I could still see them retitling it, though. Reunion, Final Fantasy VII. Um, so it looked, dear God, it looks good. Um, awesome is, like, somehow not enough. Like, in-engine, no less. Like, I actually think it looks better in play than in its cutscenes. I would agree. Like, there, there's a weight to everything that's going on. Um, and so we... Cloud- Cloud looks awesome. Cloud looks sickly like he's supposed to. Yeah, uh, and it, it looks to be, you know, I, I it was a little jarring at first to see that it was active combat, even though I think we all, at E3, we all kind of said, look, it's it's most likely going to be some kind of active combat system, especially with what they're doing with Final Fantasy XV. Um, but well, it, to be fair, they, they've also said quite a bit about, you know, there is an ATV meter in there, and they were like, we are aiming for this to be a slower pace than even, like, you know, like your Decidias and whatnot. They were like, we want you to be switching characters yeah. and, you know, strategizing. So I'm okay with that sort of concession. I'm actually wondering if it's going to be, like, Crisis Core. Like, because they've said it's not going to be exactly like it, but, like, in Crisis Core, when you you have a menu of commands, like, sort of like what they showed in that demo, and, mm-hmm. like, when you hit attack, Zach runs to the nearest enemy and attacks them it's not like it's not a full action game like you are still issuing commands right right it, it certainly looked stupid impressive you know it had the voice of jet from cowboy bebop which like i lost my mind over because that's now barrett. the best the perfect voice the perfect barrett voice of barrett awesome barrett looked awesome in barrett that. yeah barrett has gone a little bigger but barrett went from you know let, let's be very fair it was a different time and it was also a much more anime look but he went from looking like a stereotypical black man with mr t like mr t yeah to can we talk about that go go for it dude i i so my roommate and i are sort of on an ff7 high right now um and we're, we're playing that ps4 release of the original and like it's barrett's a really interesting character and i, I won't take too much of the remake time here with this but like Jeremy Parrish wrote a really good article. People, there was all that backlash to Barrett. And again, you know, this is just, you know, one person's opinion. There was all that, you know, in hindsight, it was like, oh, Barrett has a lot of stereotype issues. And from the surface, Barrett does seem like a lot of like stereotypes, but there's also a lot to his character that's actually, even among the entire canon of JRPG characters to that point, that's really interesting. Like, Barrett's like motivations and his, the way he develops as a character. Um, and, you know, I never realized this, but FF7 didn't have a single native English speaker in its localization at all. Like everybody oh, wow. was native Japanese. And so <laughs> a lot of people think the way Barrett is was, you know, and it sounds terrible to say this and it is terrible, but, you know, it was a cultural misunderstanding that they were trying to make a character that appealed to Western audiences. And that's what they thought it would be. And, you know, the way, you know, Barrett definitely has mannerisms that are <laughs> a teensy weensy bit racist. But on the other hand, I think it's one of those things where you can't discount entirely the value of something due to its flaws. Like, to have a nuanced discussion of anything, you have to discuss the pros and cons. And Barrett has a lot of really good character parts about him, too. And, like, yeah. it's like you he's know, a I loving think, dad. Yeah, th- this was not the. I was listening to old Giant Bomb 
podcast the other day, and this this was not the uh, Resident Evil Five moment of walking into the African village and a bunch of oh, spear chucking oh, natives jumped out wearing grass skirts, and it was like, oh dear, like yeah, like I think a, I think a lot of what comes off wrong about Barrett has to do with the, his vocal mannerisms almost entirely. Um, you know, cause then you look at his backstory and like Barrett is a guy who's just made repeated failures and like throughout the, like, you know, with his, with dying and with his daughter and like, you know, there are so many little nods in the beginning of final fantasy seven. Like the fact that Barrett will, the gold saucer Barrett date is a joke, but to get Barrett, you really do have to sort of court the things he would care about. Like, you know, Barrett says to you on the elevator in Shinra that he's sorry for bringing you into this, and you're like, wow, Barrett is thinking about the fact that he got his entire village tanked by Shinra, and he killed his best, he thinks his best friend is dead, and, you know, Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse just got tanked under the plate, so it's like, Barrett on the surface, I think, is a sort of a terribly racist stereotype, but I think there have been a lot of people better informed than me that have written a lot of really good things on the fact that you know, even with flaws, there are still a lot of good things about Barrett. And that's just a really roundabout way to say that I think his design in the remake is, I was about to say a bad word, is awesome. Other than the fact that he's wearing sunglasses in a Mako reactor at night. Yeah, and, and he he looks proportionate now. Like, he, like, they did a really good job of taking the original Nomura artwork, still making it look fantastic, and making it really fit that world. And it was just, this moment of seeing this game in motion was just like, this is really happening, guys. This is coming off the train. I was, I literally, I went, (laughs) I mean, I hugged Steven when we realized at the Sony press conference, what they were announcing, like at (laughs) at E3, like I reached, I can just imagine. And I said, Oh my effing God, they're doing it. They are effing doing it. Like I, it was this moment of like, you could not believe it was actually happening. And they, uh, and, and, and then, and then I hugged Rob back. I did hug Rob back, Rob back, but to say like, you know, and again, there are a lot of like, I watched a video from the PlayStation experience of people reacting to that trailer. And it's actually really funny. Like they show the combat and like, you know, the internet, obviously everyone hates everything. So they're like, Oh, it's not turn-based, but like everybody in the audience cheered super loud when they showed the combat. And like when yeah. they showed Barrett, everyone's like, ah! you know, so the, I, it's sort of fun to be a part of this collective excitement. And, like, you know, I think the the news of it being split, which I think that takes away from the general positivity people had after that trailer, uh, you know. Well, well, let's 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 pause. Let's let's pause with with how this happened, because my my bigger issue is is I think that there was a right way and a wrong way to announce that this was going to be what it is. So Sunday night after the PlayStation experience, it's about. I want to say about 9.30, 10 o'clock my time, I'm getting ready to go to bed, and the internet just kind of breaks when I see the first story that says Final Fantasy VII is going to be episodic. And I'm like, say what? Like, what's going on here? And Steven's right. Like, this is coming out of Japan time, you know, the next afternoon. Like, it, it makes sense in terms of Japanese time versus being in America. But it was like this really oddly, like, 
phrased, very nebulous, like, well, you know, we have so many things going on with this game, and there's so many different different things that we want to tell, and we don't want to make a compromised experience, so we're making, it's going to be multi-part, each part is going to be its own thing. It was this real, like, huh? Like, it, there was massive confusion after what they were trying to say, so much to the point where Katase had to come out today or yes, or was it yesterday, and release a statement trying to clarify the tire fire that is going on right now because I don't think they were quite ready to make this announcement. Compare this to when they announced the Fabula Nova Crystallis, you know, three Final Fantasy thirteen games, where they said, here's the first one, here's the second one, here's the third one, this, this is what each one is. Regardless of how that turned out, there was very clear messaging on what each one of those parts was. This was like a retranslation of something that was said almost offhand, and now everyone's confused. And what happens when everybody's confused? Everybody gets really pissed off. Well, it's the internet, so they get really pissed off no matter what. And and it's Final Fantasy VII, which is you know near and dear. Yeah, yeah I, I I think um, everyone's going to have expectations, has expectations about this, and I think this is one of those cases where expectations turn out to be different. Um, you know, they didn't announce it perhaps uh, the way they should have, and suddenly everyone's freaking out because what they expected it to be is is different, and we're still not sure what exactly it is, and now we don't know what to expect because we're still trying to, you know, figure out details about what does what does episodic mean? What What kind of installments are we talking about here? And we probably need to exercise a little bit of patience and wait mm-hmm. for more details because I have questions. I mean, we all have questions. What's, you know, how much? That's how much deep. is it, <laughs> it going to cost? Um, you know, what's the time frame we're talking about? How are they going to uh, integrate? Like if going from one installment to the next, is it going to be seamless or is it going to feel like... As, as Steven said to me, Barrett will remember that. And I was like, oh, you <laughs> bastard, why would you put that into my... Why would you put that into my head? Because that's like the ultimate fear. I think the, the ultimate fear is... Not, not trying to cut you off, Caitlin, but the ultimate fear is that this is going to be very piecemeal like the the big epic overworld and stuff like that's the number one fear that i'm hearing out of people regardless they nobody has said that the overworld is gone but that's what people are nervous about is that their their vision of final fantasy 7 is going to be compromised yeah i think you know again i i probably maintain a more optimistic stance on this than many do i was initially pretty weirded out by it but it sounds like they're basically just splitting it into three full games um and i do i agree like you know i'm sort of i would like to see an overworld i personally don't think we're gonna get one i never have thought we're gonna get one but on the other hand they're splitting it and they've said and you know this is there's are varying degrees of people who believe this and this is certainly part of it is that absolutely that they'll be able to get you know two or three money out of people um but i i also you know knowing how when we, we've been writing in the games industry for a couple of years now and you know we know games developers and i honestly you know you could you could count cd project red as a counter to this but you know there's something to be said for their claim that they're like yeah to recreate final fantasy 7 in the way people want it to look as good as that trailer it's going to be gigantic mm-hmm. so, i agree with that and, you know, again, this is Square Enix we're talking about, and 
you know, so on the one hand, I'm a little, I'm, I'm gun shy about this idea of installments because it does mean you're going to have to pay more than once. And, you know, yeah. no matter what anyone says, we'll be, we'll be pissed off if we have to pay $60 three times. Every single one of you is going to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, so they, they've already, they've got us by the short hairs there. You know, it's just, it's a case of, I, even if I don't accept that it's impossible, because again, look at how big the Witcher is, look at how big Xenoblade is. But again, well, those are 15. all games. Mm-hmm. Well, again, look at the look at the style of those games compared to Midgar. Like Final Fantasy 15 is a pretty game, but nothing I've seen out of that game has been as detailed as, for example, that one location in the demo in the few seconds of the seven remake we saw. Mm-hmm. Is it this is this is we are expecting Midgar in it on its own could be an entire game. I mean, the Crisis Core takes place. Well, I mean, all over the place, but like. You know, Midgar is a uniquely designed area in a world full of uniquely designed areas. So if we are all, in fact, saying, well, we want Midgar to be explorable, we want a world map, we want to make sure we don't lose any of the important story beats, we want the cross-dressing, we want the singular moments that make up Final Fantasy VII, then, you know, no matter what we say, the fact of the matter is designing that experience would be different than designing a Witcher, would be different than designing a Xenoblade. So in that regard, yes, I can appreciate that yeah, we're splitting it because this game would be gigantic. And I still think that that could hurt the narrative. You know, there are a lot of things that could go wrong with that. But yeah. on the surface, if they are truthful in saying we know everyone wants everything and we want to recreate everything, if we get three Final Fantasy VII games or two Final Fantasy VII games that are complete experiences that are synced together well, that do, in fact, recreate that game the way we want it recreated, um, then I'd be okay with it. You know, if they go, you know, because they are, they can no more confirm they're doing the cross dressing scene, you know, so <laughs> that's going to be. And he, the fact his, that we were all so concerned about that. <laughs> his quote, his quote for it was great too. He said something along the lines of, "Oh, I haven't designed it yet, but I want to make sure Cloud is as beautiful as possible." <laughs> uh, but, but I think, you know, I, I take them at their word when they talk about how insane this game is going to be. It, it's going to be to make this game in HD. I mean. Seven, just think about the first disc of Seven and all the different stuff that goes into that game. And, you know, my favorite part of Seven is all the stuff in Midgar. I actually think the game starts extremely strong having that highly linear structure. I think it works it out because of things like Although the cross-dressing. I, I do think people forget that the opening of Midgar is like two, uh, two maybe three hours of that game. Uh, not the way I played it. I mean, I, I spent like five the or way, six. The way we played it as kids, but my roommate and I played it <laughs> recently. It can be very fast, yeah. It's straight up. It's like an hour and a half, maybe two hours. But, uh, but I think that, you know, I, I'm trying to be very optimistic about this. You know, I had the eye rolling. I had the Telltale Games as the only company. Telltale is the only one that's really gotten episodic gaming right so there is that major concern in the back of my head. You know, uh, hmm, Half-Life, Half-Life 2, Episode 3, believe. Uh who would you say has done episodic gaming as besides Telltale? Uh, well, for starters, the new King's Quest games; those are individual. Oh, that's a good point. Okay, uh, okay. You know, they're they're related. Um, a lot of people really enjoyed Life is Strange. Um, I've played the first episode okay. and liked it. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I don't think episodic gaming on its whole is done wrong. Like, I like res. As an example, here is the danger of of releasing something in installments. Resident Evil Revelations 2 is like the best game in that series in a long time, and nobody cares about it because it was released episodically. Right, they released one a nobody week. Nobody cares. And there was no point nobody in releasing cares. it. There was no point in releasing one a week because you know the entire game was finished. Correct. And, you know, 
So with FF7, I think the problem, like they've been careful not to use the word episodic. So, because I think that's the fear is that they're going to do Telltale Games. Barrett will remember that, and you know, every area is going to hails from the planet, self-contained. You know, nothing is really going to carry over. You're not going to be making. You're not going to go find your gold chocobo and hunt down. Uh, you know, a, a Knights of the Round materia. Um, so if they're building this in Final Fantasy VII Part One, Final Fantasy VII Part, like if they're splitting it the way they split the Lord of the Rings. You know, or the way you split these parts of one narrative, I I can see merit in that because I do think there are actually some fairly organic stopping points in that game's story. But mm-hmm. you know, I think I think what a lot of people want is they want you know, well, in part two, am I going to be able to continue exploring the areas from part one? You know, am I going to be able to go find the turtles' paradise posters? You know, am I you know am I going to see Don Corneo in Wu Tai later? You know, uh, you know is Vincent who I'm almost positive is going to become a mandatory party member. Cause he basically, you know, he would have been like Yuffie sort of has no bearing on anything, but you but know, she's it's still awesome when we love her. Uh, I love her. So shush. I, like I, I want to see her more I like fleshed Yuffie. out. I like Yuffie, but her relevance to final fantasy seven is pretty limited to that one quest. And that's, this is a chance for them to work that in better. Like, Vincent was always going to be, I think, a real party member, and I think that's due to time he got made optional. But, like, you, you see how many hooks he has to the story. You know, if they want to keep it true to the spirit of Yuffie, you know, maybe make the whole sequence optional, but make that side quest where, you know, you keep she keeps popping up throughout the game and annoying you and then eventually joining you. That would be cool. But, you know, I think the, the, the thing is, is if they make these three separate installments and the third one is like, yeah, you can go to Junon part of Midgar and the North Crater, that's going to be disappointing. Yeah. I, I'm I'm really trying to keep an open mind here. I think the, the biggest takeaway I have for this is Square Enix still every once in a while gets their PR kind of screwy. I think this was a case of that, and, and I'm not ready to, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I got my Dragon Quest 7 and 8 3DS announcements, so I still love them right now. But... I think it's okay to be concerned, but much the same way as we talked about, you know, the Star Wars trailers for The Force Awakens. I've I don't seen that right now. I know. I don't think there's a lot to be super upset about and a lot to be super concerned about cuz like Caitlin said at the very start, all we have right now are questions. And I think that Square Enix should listen to those concerns. Um I am personally very worried that they're going to try to bring all of the compilation of Final Fantasy VII garbage into this game. Uh, I, okay. say, I say garbage. garbage. I say garbage, and I mean that very harshly. I, I don't need Dirge of Cerber- Cerberus. Yeah, no, no. I, I really don't I, want that okay, in there. Okay, I love I Vincent, but no. I know people don't like the way Dirge of Cerberus plays, but Dirge of Cerberus has an interesting story. Crisis Core has an awesome story, and I would be unsurprised. I, I would... Both of you should get ready for Genesis, Kadaj, Yazoo, and Laws to be in this in some form. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, but Genesis is going to be a mid-game boss battle of some sort. I think like, uh, okay. one of the things that I don't like about Seven was how they they screwed around with the canon and retconned, and they they added stuff that didn't need to be added. Like there, I, I get that you love Crisis Core, so I'm not necessarily talking about Crisis Core. And all the Zack stuff was already a hook in the game that they could expand on. Any, you know, that's that's an, a smart way of doing that stuff. But there are also aspects like I, I hate Advent Children. Like I hate that movie. Like that that movie is just giant fan service to get a Cloud versus Sephiroth 
fight in CG. And it's gorgeous, and the music works, but it is completely unnecessary. Like I, It's unnecessary, I agree. And the narrative of it is not great. But I also don't know that they would add that to this. I know, but it, it, that's my concern, is when they talk about... But when there's some of that nebulous language talking about how big Final Fantasy VII is, that's some of the stuff that I think they might be talking about. And so if it is just the main game, you know, doled out into small chunks so that we can get it in a timely manner, okay, I, I can be on board with that. And I, I am kind of on board. Maybe I'll be upset if there isn't an overworld, but if it's that super fun, you know, high-density linear gameplay that made Midgar so special to me, one of the reasons why I still remember the Shinra Tower, I'm on board. Like, I, I'm still very open-minded to this game, but I think it's fair to say that Square Enix kind of announced it in probably the worst way they could have done it, and the internet gave a collective meh, and they need to do some damage control on it. I also find it very interesting that this game is Unreal Engine 4. I think yeah. that that's very surprising. Like, I, I think that shows that this won't be an open world game because all this time that they've put into their open world engine for Final Fantasy 15, it sounds like they're saying, well, screw that. Like, this well, is I way think, faster. I, th- I think what people need to realize is that they're not trying to build Final Fantasy 15 because the number of people saying, oh, it's got action combat. They're just ripping off the 15 engine. It's like, no, they're not. Right. At all. That. You should be happy that that is the case. They are not doing that. I think I'm can gonna. I, go. Can I say something kind of controversial? In that I'm actually more excited by what we saw in two minutes of combat yeah. for the remake than and everything that I have seen and experienced for myself in 15. I... Even though 15 looks cool and good, I just I'm way more excited about the combat in yeah. seven now. I'm I'm actually a hundred percent with you. I think there is some nostalgia goggles in there. I think that's maybe why we're feeling that way a little bit, but. I am way more excited about the 7 remake than I am, you know, bros driving around in a car. And and you can call me old. I mean, maybe that's part of it, but that game is not grabbing me the way that 7 is. But I also think a lot of the reason is because 7's characters are so iconic. Yeah. Like, that, those... That crew, I can't wait to see Tifa. I can't wait to see what Tifa looks like. like oh, man. Like, I just... I think their redesigns are so on point. I yeah. think everyone's going to look really great. I, I'm, I'm excited to see what Tifa looks like. I'm guessing Aerith will be close to what she looks like in Crisis Core. Um, but, you know, it's there's a lot to be optimistic for, and I agree. I, I'm more excited for the 7 remake, but that's purely nostalgia, you know, and that the brief bit of the 7 remake we saw, A, we weren't expecting it. I don't think anyone was expecting to see anything from this game. They were like, we're going to show no. something in winter. I was expecting an extended remake trailer, not gameplay. Uh, and, you know, part of that could have to do with the fact that they're splitting it into installments, that they can actually show part of this game. Yeah. Um, they're showing it at Jump Festa. They added it to their uh, to the list of things they're showing there right after this all came out. So uh, we will have more news on it very soon. You guys think we're going to play this before Kingdom Hearts 3? I think we may actually be able to play it around the same time or before. I think, uh, I think we're going to play it before Kingdom Hearts yeah, 3. I think, I think KH3 too. is 2017. I, I, I think that might be fair. Uh, cause 15 is definitely next year and 2.2.8 next year. Uh, and then three, the following, hmm. you know, I think the internet needs to, it, it, it's hard for me to say this because I had a lot of the fame, same reactions too. So I don't want people to think that I'm belittling their feelings here, but I think everybody kind of 
take a deep breath. Let's relax. Let's see what they're doing. I, I actually am not too surprised about this considering what, you know, it, it's part of Square Enix, but it's a different branch. But, you know, considering what they're doing with the Hitman, the new Hitman game, like releasing a giant large map every month for three months uh, and kind of a chance for them. They've been really upfront about that to make changes if they if they see something or if, if you know some people have some different ideas of things, they can kind of maybe implement that a little bit with their with the way they're going about the design of this game. It could be really good, you know. It, but I I think that I understand the concerns. I hear them. I'm not belittling anybody's feelings on that. It's just a case of let's let's see what's going on with this game before we get the pitchforks and everything. And to be fair, they've been they they've actually been fairly consistent in messaging for that. They were saying as recently as like you know like a few years ago, like that they were like, yeah, Seven's a huge game. If we ever did that, there's no way we could do it all in one game. So yeah. it's not like the, it's not like they're surprising us with this. And again, not that it's a good thing or an inherently bad thing. I don't like the idea of paying for it three times or however many times. That's lame. And I don't like the idea of possibly having to wait to get the conclusion and like what splitting it up could do to the pace of the narrative. But on the other hand, if you get everything, you get everything. So we don't know enough to make any true value judgments other than that it sucks that people are going to pay more than once. Yeah. 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 When do we think it comes out on uh, Xbox One? Because they say first on PlayStation 4, which I'm like, oh, come on. Like, really, we're, we're going to do this? That worked out so well for you guys with Rise of the Tomb Raider, right? right? <laughs> should, they should, it should be the reverse surprise. The next year, the next holiday season. No. I'm, I mean, the, I'm, the, not, the, the I'm not better or anything. Uh, I would actually, I was reading some interesting stuff on Rise of the Tomb Raider. I honestly think Square knew it wasn't going to sell to expectations on Bone, but they took the big money from Microsoft to make the game cheaper to sell, and now they release it next year on PS4, and it sells a ton, and it costs them way less money. That's true. That's true. It could get a lot of word of mouth because that's kind of what happened with the Tomb Raider with the first reboot was like people realized that it was a good game and they started buying it. Well, so. plus, you know, it, it, it builds hype of like, yeah, you know, it's going to be fine. It's finally on PS4. Let's talk about it. Yeah, you know, as far uh, as I'm concerned, they basically released the beta on Xbox. Oof. <laughs> oof. 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 So I, I think the only other thing I, I really want to talk about this this week, um, because maybe this is like the, the counter to the, you know, kind of talking and trying to assuage fears about Final Fantasy VII. Um, I kind of had a similar reaction to uh, a new Valkyria Chronicles uh, announcement, or a new Valkyria game. Uh, Valkyria Revolutions is, I think, what they're kind of calling it right now. It's got a really cool name. Um, So they announced this, and the internet gives a collective, holy crap, this is amazing! And then I see the first trailer, and I start hearing talk about action combat, and I feel like I'm on the reverse side of this, where like I'm calling for people to be calm about Final Fantasy VII, but I have concerns. I actually have a lot more concerns about the new Valkyria game. Just from hey, what remember I've... when you laughed at me because they turned my Fantasy Star series into action RPGs? I didn't laugh at you. I was I was just as upset as you were. <laughs> well, not Fantasy Star Online, Fantasy Star Universe more. Uh, but not that I didn't like DSO, but I. I don't know, like, uh, maybe it was just the first trailer, which was very fantastical, very, like, glowy sword lasers and characters, you know, sprinting at each other, very Final Fantasy-esque. That's not what I think of when I think of Valkyria Chronicles. Like, I think about my scouts, you know, moving forward and my tank lumbering forward, and maybe this new action combat will be awesome when they first show it. They've talked about how this demo is going to allow them to collect a lot of feedback, just like the Final Fantasy XV demo. There's a lot of really positive things to talk about here, 
but I didn't get a Valkyrianess when I watched it. Am I alone in feeling that right now? Am I being the crazy one like Tinfoil Hat right now about that? I haven't watched anything from it. Uh, yeah, I'm also been bad. All I've seen are the screenshots, which look really pretty. I like, I like it. Um, I don't know how much they're going to keep the sort of watercolor, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, painting style that they had, which was really cool and set uh, the game apart from other uh, RPGs. But it looks pretty, and I don't know. I mean. If it does go action, is it going to feel weird? Yeah, but I'm, I'd also just be stoked to have another game in this series because it really feels lately uh, that they've been ignoring it. Yeah, um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm bitter because it we haven't gotten Valkyrie Chronicles Chronicles Three, and are we ever going to get it at this rate? Um, I would just love to have another game in the series, and well, assuming that this means it's coming out here too, because that's Another question, but mm-hmm. Stevens kind of had like the best way of articulating better than I can my points, which is that Sega is known to try new things with their properties for good and bad. So it's like, yeah, they might be trying something amazingly different with this property. Sometimes that works. Sometimes, Sometimes it don't. And so that's I think that's where a lot of my fear is coming in right now is like, you know, as someone who really enjoys the first Valkyria Chronicles, I still need to finish that damn game and just get over that damn tank that keeps breaking me every time I try to replay it. But I I really like that game because of its groundedness and the fact that there are fantastical elements, but they are not the focus. I would be really bummed out if I was playing a game where I was playing the superhero in the middle of this combat, like Dynasty Warriors style. I don't want to play a game like that. You know, like, I, I want to be directing my troops i want to be like taking control of a scout taking control of a sniper maybe that's still in this game maybe maybe we just haven't seen enough of it but i i'm a little nervous it could also have to do with the titling maybe it is in fact not a valkyria chronicles game maybe it is a game set in the valkyria universe that involves jedi and and it might st- and and the other thing is it might still be awesome. Like that's the thing is like you know all and, and this goes back to what I'm saying about seven is that it might still be awesome, guys. Like change can be scary. Like of course it can. When they showed off Resident Evil Four for the first time, you know the final version of Resident Evil Four, everybody was like, "What in the world is going on here?" And it turned out to be probably one. Well, I, I was on board, but that was also because I was a little bored. Ha 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 of Resident Evil at that point, but it ended up being probably one of the most influential games of the past 15 years. I mean, it basically created the modern stop-and-pop shooter, like Gears of War traces its roots back to that game. Any cover-based shooter that's third-person kind of traces its roots back to Resident Evil 4, so change can be good, but I think it is, you know... It's natural to have those feelings of worry, and I think that's important. You know, don't light the internet on fire just because you're worried. Um, and let's kind of see where we go with this. We're going to have a Valkyria, whatever it is, uh, demo in the near future. And if they really do listen to fan feedback, that could also be a really good thing. Yeah. So it's weird. It's like on the one hand, I'm trying to be very open-minded. And on the other hand, I'm actually more nervous. So it's it's a weird time to be a gamer, but I'm I'm overall happy. Did you guys see Neo? The, the Tecmo, uh, Koei Tep- Tecmo's... Onimusha Souls at the PlayStation Experience. 
Man, I really wish I didn't tune out every time I heard the the word Koei Tecmo. <laughs> you, you need to. Uh, I, but I'm I honestly do. I'm just like, oh, is it gonna have boobs? I'm Not with that you. I don't think those are great, but like, you know. <laughs> I'm totally with you, dude, on on that feeling. But this game looks like the Onimusha game that we have wanted, mixed with Souls, and that has me really excited. Capcom actually just uh, copyrighted an Onimusha. I know. I had to show Jackie because she is a huge Onimusha fan, and we were both like, <laughs> I remember really trying to play through three, but it came out when I was in like mega college. Awesome. I, I really liked it, but I was like in the middle of college and had no time, like n- absolutely no time to play it. But I really liked what I played. I didn't like two so much. I, I really didn't like two. But that's. I never played any of them. Please don't kill me. Oh, Caitlin. It was, I know we can't was, be friends anymore. Well, but to be fair, we? when we when we had PlayStation twos, the only games we had were Zone of the Enders and Onimusha there for a long time, and the Metal Gear, and, and the Metal Gear Solid two demo. So it was okay. <laughs> I did play that demo a lot. Yes, we did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. So yeah, uh, I thought the PlayStation experience was fun. I think we got a lot of cool RPGs to look forward to. Um, I think that's kind of a good place to end it. I think we, we kind of talked about uh, our Final Fantasy VII and our, our Valkyria. We're kind of at a good place right now. So yes, I can't wait to see more of Final Fantasy VII though. I, I, I oh my god, yeah, that game just has so much personality. I think that's one of the reasons I like it so much. It's the other reason why I like Nine so much. See, Steven, that I game is so derpy. It, FF7 is so goofy. It really is. It, but in a good it, way. It, 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 no, I, like, yeah, it's like, that's the thing that they have to remember in this remake, is that Cloud is not Squall. Like, yes. I can't count the number of times playing FF7. We, I've looked at my roommate and I've been like, oh, look at how emo Cloud is being. Like, Cloud is a boisterous kind of cocky hero type who, like, Shoulder you know, shrugs. He, he says bad jokes, and you know he tells everyone to get out while I fight this guy when Rufus shows up. Like, and let's mosey, people. Yeah, like they really have to forget that Advent Children Cloud is not Cloud. Which to me, I like Advent Children. You know, the plot is sort of dumb, whatever. But the biggest crime of Advent Children was turning Cloud into a brooding type. I would agree with you, and I I don't want to see that, and I'm hoping that. It, he, I like his voice actor already in the the remake. Like he he sounds like he's got just the right mix of like he's well, a kid. Hmm? It's Steve Burton. Yeah, but, yeah. But what I'm saying is he's still got that kid like quality. You know, he, it's not like you know what's his face doing Raiden in Revengeance like Raiden. I like. Well, I mean, he doesn't. Quentin Flynn. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't always talk like that. It's only when he's in like I'm gonna murder you mode. Yeah, which is what ninety percent. Yeah. <laughs> Steven well, no, forgets. it's only in cutscenes. Steven forgets how much he there's actual murder in that game. Um, forgets how much of that game he actually hasn't played. I also forget how much of that game I liked because it wasn't a lot. <laughs> I really don't like that game. <laughs> that game is fantastic. Finally, uh, something we can agree on, Rob. You and I didn't like Revengeance. Yeah. I hated that game's camera. I thought that was absolute. Like, I I think that camera breaks that game because it is so damn slow. Like I don't like anything about that game, and I'm as I, I was saying, a lot of people would disagree with you. I and and that's Maybe fine. Maybe. Maybe. I, I, think, I think that's also a game that does not explain itself at all how to play it. You had to explain to me how to like counter things in the game because it does not explain it very well. Oh, that's right. It gives you a tutorial while you're trying to do the thing that you're being told to do. <laughs> and now we come full circle. 
<laughs> that said, I would love to see a sequel to that game that expands on the ideas. That That's usually where I stay. Usually when I don't like a game, I'm okay if they make a sequel and they make it better. That's all I ask. Only this time they can say, Parasite, son. Mm. Instead. If that's a spoiler for Metal Gear 5, I'm upset with you. Oh, God. But it's impossible to spoil Metal Gear Solid 5 because there's no story. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's actually no story. You get Doge. Doge is awesome. Move on. Well, yeah, but I mean... Quiet, like put some damn clothes on. Like, that. that's about all there is to it. Quiet, quiet, seriously, put some clothes... Quiet! Oh, for God's sake. Is she dancing in the rain again? Yeah, she's dancing in the rain again. Oh, for God's sake. It's amazing how far we've come from uh, Russian mafioso with armpit hair to quiet. Think about that one for a few minutes. (laughs) We also had a game that involved staring at women's asses to progress in the first one, so... Yeah, that's... Oh, Kojima. All right. So uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, The reason why Derek has been so quiet is because we actually killed him and uh, drank his blood. No, uh, Derek had to leave suddenly in the middle of the podcast. Everything's fine, but we didn't want to kind of interrupt the flow there. Uh, But yeah, he's totally fine. He will definitely be back on the show. Everything's cool there. I think he just wanted to go play more Xenoblade. That's what I think actually happened. Seems like... I blame him. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. So, uh... Thanks, everybody, for listening to the latest episode of Random Encounter. Please be sure to like us on iTunes and uh, give us feedback. I know we, we got some feedback on the last episode. Uh, somebody kind of called me out on the iTunes review saying that I, I was a little tough on the last episode and I was kind of being a dick. I would 100% agree with you. I think I was being a little bit of a dick, so I apologize for that. Someone reviewed us on iTunes to say you were being a dick in an episode. Yeah, it gave us, gave us a one star. Um, and you know what? Um, I can take constructive criticism, and I, I think I was being a bit much on the last episode, and I apologize to the listeners for that, and hopefully I've, I've done a better job of being smiley, happy, objective Rob instead of I don't know why I'm picking a fight over this Rob. So just in a surly I, mood that day. I will keep my mouth shut and be nice. I love you too, Stephen. Not in regards to you. (laughs) Oh, okay. Thank you. So for Stephen, Caitlin, and Derek, thank you so much, and we'll see you all later.